You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, hey, hey. Episode 82 with Dr. Katherine Zerby. I'm so excited about this one. Besides for the topic, just to have a chat with Katherine because she's a legend. I mean, I know I keep saying that, but I think basically everybody we've had recently is a legend. So I'm considering myself super, super lucky. And I'm considering all of us really, really lucky that we get to spend some time with legends. Before we talk about what today's topic is and a little bit about Catherine, you know this, the point of the podcast here, well, not the point, you know, one of the points is to start thinking about things differently, to get your mind going, to piss you off, to connect with someone else, whatever it is, to evoke something. So what I'm asking from you is when you listen to this, if it strikes a chord, if it annoys you, if it bores you, if it interests you, whatever it is, talk about it. Start talking to your people. Start talking to me. Send it out. Share it. Let's keep talking. So a little bit more about Catherine. Obviously, she's a legend. We've established that. She is a training and supervising psychoanalyst at the Oregon Psychoanalytics Center, which means that she's the person that the people who are training to be psychoanalysts go to for supervision. And she's the person who people who are training to be psychoanalysts go to her training analysis, which in essence is their therapy that we have to do three times a week. So she's that person. And she's also a clinical professor of psychiatry at Oregon Health Sciences University. She speaks everywhere, nationally, internationally, on literally every topic, and has authored four books. And get this, over 150 papers, chapters, and reviews. Her practice is in Portland, Oregon. Oh, and by the way, she's received numerous awards for her teaching and writing contributions. So like I said, legend. Also, note about her writing. When I present at any conference or talk or organization, and I don't know if any of you have ever submitted papers to be accepted for a presentation, you have to submit a list of References. And I think the minimum is usually five. I don't really remember. And of course, obviously, I always submit like 27. And if you scroll all the way to the bottom, there's at least one, if not three, Zerby, Kava, Catherine, and insert paper, insert chapter, insert book, insert something. She has been one of the foundations of my talks. So now we get to go to the source. Are you excited? I'm excited. I'm so excited. So today, Catherine and I are talking about secrets, secrets and eating disorders. When I think about secrets, I think about crazy soap opera shows on TV that are just sort of like lie after lie after secret and dysfunctional relationships and like 
eating popcorn because it's so dramatic. But in fact, secrets, that's maybe one version of secret, but secrets are pervasive with eating disorders. So, I mean, it can come out in any way and most definitely affects a person on an individual level, but people as it relates to the relationship. So secrets are a pretty big deal when we think about eating disorders. It's sort of woven into the entire idea of an eating disorder. So Catherine and I talk about the idea of secrets. Why do people keep secrets? How are people's lives affected by secrets? How it is all affected to your relationship with food and eating disorders? And of course, woven into the entire thing is what can we actually do about it? So let's just do it. Let's just have the conversation. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to uh, have this conversation. Me too. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Yeah. So today we're talking about such an exciting topic. We're talking about secrets and secrets are a central theme with eating disorders. It can come out in so many different ways, whether somebody's hiding the fact that they have an eating disorder or they're hiding specific behaviors, or it's just other information within relationships. But it's a theme that comes up all the time to secrets. So I guess we could even start with why do people keep secrets? Why is it such a big thing? Oh, Rachel, it's that's a great place to start. And it's a big thing because, you know, in development, when we say when a kid can keep a secret, like around the age of four, or even tell a lie to a parent, they have a sense of their own mind and mm-hmm. they can keep things to themselves, which is a great developmental capacity. And we all need that. We all need to have a sense of privacy and things we share. And we know that. But I think the issue clinically is when secrets become destructive when they get us in trouble. Yeah, that's for sure true. I love the point about thinking about it developmentally because we often think about secrets as a bad thing. And I mean, for the most part in our conversation, we'll talk about the destructive nature of secrets and perhaps we can also talk about the other side. But this is not necessarily a bad thing inherently. And even thinking about developmentally is actually quite a milestone if you think about it. It absolutely is a milestone. And this has been shown in research. And just ask any mom, (laughs) moms will tell you this. Oh, I knew when he had reached a certain age because he really had a way of hiding the fact that he took a cookie, even though I knew. I knew mm-hmm. of course that he had. So it is a it's a developmental issue and we need it because there are certain things, like even in our friendships now, things that you would not tell your best friend Jane, but you might tell Sue, or things you would share with your spouse. And then there are wonderful secrets that we have with which we need the capacity because let's say you're plotting a delicious birthday surprise for your husband or your little one is just wants a two-wheeler with training wheels so much Mm -hmm. and they're begging you for it. You know that they're going to get it for their birthday. This requires the capacity to keep a secret. You're not, Mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a wonderful secret to have, but even then, Even when you're planning that special surprise, let's say for your spouse, you see one of the problems we have in secret keeping. 
Let me tell you what that is. It turns over and over and over again in your mind. And you almost might blurt it out. You almost might say, George, ah, we got to protect Tuesday night because secrets do dwell on the mind. So then what happens to a relationship or any interactions if somebody has something that's on their mind over and over and over for however long it is, and they can't or won't share it with the other person? That's when things get tricky. Uh, Some secrets are very important to have, and I wouldn't even call them, them secrets, as say it is important for all of us to know what things to keep private. To Mm -hmm. ourselves, we all have private conversations internally with ourselves and with others. Where it can get difficult is when we have a sense of power over another person because we have a secret or we're doing something self-destructive or we know that something needs to be spoken about but isn't. Think of a blackmailer. You know, if you and and then here's the power we have over people as therapists, because we know a lot about them. So people become scared of us because we do know so much about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for the plug. That's real reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about this just a couple of minutes before we're talking about developmentally. This is something that we that we want to see. How does it then? translate in a kid's mind from say however let's say around four they're learning the idea of keeping secrets or the idea of a little white lie or whatever it is some private information that's uh, in a sense individuating them how does that then become i guess what i'll call it is almost a pathological way of keeping secrets is there a natural progression of understanding how to use the secret or what happens with that is my question making any sense Yes, yes. I think it's it's a great question because it's also about the growing capacity of the child to have a sense of self. And the more that sense of self develops, the better the conversations become with the parents and with their own friends. And you see that happening. And that, then it becomes, you know, I, I, I like to think of it as just one of these wonderful balls that picks up speed as it goes down a hill, just sort of naturally. It, it just runs on its own. So that the capacity for secret keeping grows as somebody develops ego strength. Now, on the other hand, let's say you have a burden child, somebody who's hearing a lot of arguments in their house or their mommy's best friend or daddy's best friend, and they know all kinds of things they shouldn't have. That's when we think of the situation of feeling things we're not supposed to feel and knowing things we're not supposed to know, or the parentified child, the child who knows too much about what is going on in the family of origin and feels they better keep that to themselves. So what happens to that kid either then or later on? There's been some case research, wonderful case reports about just that kind of thing. One example that I can can tell you about is a a young boy who was furious about 
his parents having marital issues. And what he didn't do then was to study. And he, he it, it's not just a form of rebellion, but he was so preoccupied with what was going on in them that he stayed stuck. And you can see how his mind went around this. You can kind of fantasize about it. his mind kept going around what's going on and I don't understand. And it became like it's called by the, the cognitive researchers an obsession in a jar. And it does become like an obsession in a jar. What's going on? What's happening? And when things become that obsessive, you can't do other things like you can't go out with your friends as easily and you can't read as easily. You also can't have the natural questions about life. So would you say that someone's uh, almost cognitive development is stunted or delayed because of it? One of the wonderful points in the case literature, in the psychoanalytic case literature, is example after example of how in psychodynamic therapy or psychoanalysis, as secrets were revealed, people's intellectual abilities grew. Wow. Isn't that, Look at that. Now, that is when secrets that have been held, and sometimes, you know, secrets can either be repressed, as we know, kind of shifted downward, or they can be dissociated. They can be like we think about abuse, for example, with that word, people just don't want to know. So they push them to the sides. We call that a vertical split. But when these things begin to heal in the therapeutic relationship and more can be spoken to, research studies show that things like IQ points go up. This is the uh, the famous one of the, one of the results of one of the famous psychotherapy projects in the Midwest. I won't belabor that point, but also clinicians have read about how their patients have gotten more curious, they've gotten inspired, they've gone back to school. It's like a weight, a si and it is a weight. A secret can be a weight. A secret can be a great thing to have. If you and I share a couple of personal secrets back and forth, this increases intimacy between us, Rachel. It's the sign of an evolving friendship or a relationship. So we feel privileged when we know something about somebody else that not everybody knows. It's a very positive thing. It's when there is a tipping point and the secret becomes endure. That's the only thing you can think about. For example, you would get so worried about your friend that again, it would become just run over your mind, run over your mind. And that's where it would stick. Are you saying that the secret or obsession about the secret then is shifted to the person it's shared with? Yes, exactly. It shifts to the person it's shared with. Okay. So maybe not the best thing either. That's just sort of passing the ping pong back and forth. Yeah. How do you prevent that from happening? I like to think about knowing one's own boundaries here right. and about the personal information one can take in at any given time. And also some things that I recommend to my patients are some self-care tools. Many of my patients, as you would guess, at this stage of my career are other therapists and medical mm -hmm. professionals. So, you know, you have, they know lots of secrets we know lots of secrets. So how do we take care of ourselves? And this is great advice for everybody. Write down 
And writing is a wonderful tool. You don't have to share it with anybody. But if somebody does tell you something that's uncomfortable, write it down. The research is very strong here that that helps you metabolize that secret. Use things like your physical exercise. Keep it moderate. Don't go overboard. That gets into an overexercise phenomenon. You don't want that. And then I also think about clinical consultation. You may not want to share the secret about your best friend with somebody in New York or New Jersey, but maybe you've got another friend or a parent or somebody in your life that you can talk about it with, especially if it's burdening you. Yeah. But I think also what you're alluding to before, maybe this is my understanding of what you're alluding to, is is that even not saying this outright this way, perhaps there's a nicer way to say it, but like up to here, I'm not accepting any more secrets, <laughs> which is laying the boundary. This is the capacity that I show up as a friend, as a whoever for you. But once it gets to a certain point, that's too much. I can't possibly bear that. And so we need to draw the boundary here. That's right. And this is a particular professional hazard for those of us in this field. Yeah. Because people will unload. And so oh my gosh, we, yeah, you're a therapist. Here are here's my life story. <laughs> exactly. Take an airplane ride. A therapist, a, a very good psychiatrist I know, talk about a secret. She kept the secret that she was a psychiatrist because she didn't want to hear people's stories and secrets. She used to tell them she was a teacher, an elementary That's school. So teacher. smart. I would be an accountant. That's so no one would be interested in talking to me. <laughs> You know, one of my closest friends is an accountant, and she's one of the best therapists I know. I told her once years ago that she should make a career switch. And she said to me, "Uh uh-uh, nobody comes to you because you're any too happy. (laughs) She gives wonderful advice, and I know you would too, even if you were an accountant. Yeah, but also that's a good example of maybe an appropriate secret. If we're on an airplane and we have an 11-hour flight ahead of us, Perhaps, maybe given a few minute segment of a a glimpse of what a conversation might look like, I might choose a different profession to the person sitting next to me. And that would be a, a good secret for me. That's right. That's a good secret. Or also have your headphones around your neck because yeah. you've got work to do. That's a very good example. When we're talking about friendships here, it's always okay to say to people, I think, I really hear this, I think you should be taking this up with your therapist, or it's important to seek out professional help. And this, of course, is very true with our patients with eating disorders. In fact, I don't think I would be talking to you about secrets today, but all that my eating disorder patients over the years have taught me about secret keeping and the kinds of secrets they keep. Mm -hmm. And people unload on them. You know, they have become, they're often the one who hears all these family messages and they take it into themselves and they don't know how to stop and to really push their friend or loved one in the direction of getting additional support. Yeah. Well, I think this also sort of then bleeds into the question of how secrets potentially shape the entire dynamic of a relationship whether it's family or friends, but for sure with family, because those are our original relationships. So perhaps you can speak to this, how secrets and 
the intensity or the severity of the secret can shape the way that families interact. Oh boy. May I give you a clinical example? Yes. That might be more digestible for this uh, loaded question. (laughs) Just one that comes quickly to mind. And it's probably not the best is a case I was called on to consult with years ago. She was about 15, 14, 15 at the time. And she had a hallucination. And the hallucination was, don't say it. Don't say it. There was a voice in her head. And the very savvy psychopharmacologist didn't want to put her on medication. So to make a long story short, I was asked to do an evaluation. And I read a lot of the medical records that went way, way back. This young girl had a a very severe case of anorexia. I tell my students, you know, everybody has a theory of their illness. What's your theory? I ask a patient, how do you think you got your eating disorder? Or how did you think you got depression? With this girl, I did it a bit differently. I said, what is it you're not supposed to say? Well, she wouldn't tell me, of course, but I had figured it out in the medical record that she had been the product of, in those days, in vitro fertilization, which was not as, and her parents wanted to keep it a secret that her uncle was actually the sperm donor. The thing was that everybody on the medical team, every clinician who had treated this girl, and there were many, knew it. So here's the family dynamic. She knows she can't speak it. She can't say it. The parents know it. They both know what's going on. And so that totally, not only did that get implicated in her eating disorder and what seemed like almost a psychotic process, when it could be spoken to with help by the family therapist, and they were the real heroes of this story, the distortion in the family began to decrease. Didn't happen overnight, but the, the parents were able to talk with this young girl about what she knew, but what she wasn't supposed to know. So here's an example. We're talking about something that previously felt like you couldn't talk about it. Was the treatment just in and of itself? Yes. 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 Are there examples of families or individuals that perhaps their relationships is are shaped by secrets, but perhaps not like this one big life-changing secret that is smaller, maybe I guess individually less significant secret, and those are also just as big? Or is it more so we're talking about the big secrets? Oh, that's such a great question because doesn't bigness depend on the point of view that you're looking at it from? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it can seem very, that's where our empathy it may seem like nothing to us, but for the individual in question, it's a big deal. I would say a, a much more difficult phenomenon is to realize how multi-generational secrets can be. That mm. people like with the Holocaust, victims of war, you know, this is something that Dr. Morris Apre has written about where eating disorders, addictions, various kinds of sexual disorders, he has been able to trace them back to transgenerational transmission of trauma 
that have never been discussed in the family of origin. Wow. So I'm wondering about this culture of keeping secrets that it affects a, a kid, you know, obviously grows up to be an adult, but affects a kid in that perhaps they hold onto information that isn't appropriate for them to hold onto. And then there's this obsession in a jar reaction. Are there also messages that then translate to, I will keep my own secrets, meaning how does somebody learn to keep their own secrets? And I guess I'm thinking specifically in the way that it's perhaps dysfunctional, meaning too many secrets are kept. How does somebody learn how to do that or to do that? People learn how to do that by not having somebody there on their side to talk to. So they do what I think of as burying the secret inside their body. They keep everything too private. And this was, again, this this came to me so unexpectedly in my career as, when I was working on, I was leading a unit for eating disorder patients. There was, of all things, an editorial published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1995. And a medical student who had severe bulimia nervosa was felt that she had to keep it a secret. And she wrote about this. This is my secret. I am going to go, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to go into my residency and I'm going to keep it a secret. And you know why? Because nobody's going to ask me about it. And so when I've been in clinical situations, like in hospitals, I am amazed sometimes at how there's very, very obvious eating disorder. Someone either looks pale and malnourished, or, you know, when you know eating disorders, you know the telltale physical signs to look for. And there's always, there's both the eating disorder story, which this person was talking about, Rachel, and then there is the backstory. And that's one you can only get over time. That's why treatment can't be fast for eating disorders. You can do certain important things like nutrition and some CBT tools, which I'm all for, DBT tools that we that I'm I'm sure are part of your podcast. But the one thing you can't get is the evolving story over time that's like a spiral. And every time the person goes over their story, you get new details about why they've kept this secret. Yeah. I mean, I think just going back to your point before of needing to have somebody there who's going to listen, which then tells us that there will be a person there to listen to our secrets, then translates throughout our lifetime. And the same is true of there isn't a person there or a figure to listen, to actually not just listen in the uh-huh, uh-huh sort of sense, but actually listen, then if it isn't there, we don't trust that the person will be there, in which case we keep the secrets. And then what you're saying is that it goes into our body. Yes. And then what happens to the secret that lives in our body? I just want to elaborate on this important point you've made. Listening isn't just listening. Listening is looking at somebody and giving them the feedback of, yes, I've heard about your day at school. Or, oh, sweetie, you know, this is your first breakup. That's really hard. Or being there to congratulate all the kinds of things we take for granted in 
this world where we have good enough parenting, that there's somebody, that there's one person there who listens, who mirrors, who gives good feedback and makes it expressible. Okay, that's the first thing. Now, the second part of your question again was, Oh, I don't think I had a question. I was just sort of trying to make sure I understood what you were saying. But we can go into oh how it goes oh, into how the is body. It? yeah oh oh well when this is the hundred thousand dollar question and if hmm. I had the answer to that and I think we would be very far along. I think we swallow secrets. I think they take up residence in the body. There's a pressure exerted on us to keep this information to ourselves and think about how that must take enormous amounts of our body budget. There's the old Freud economic theory that there's just so much to go around has actually been proven recently to be quite accurate. We all have a body budget. And if you don't take a nap when you should, when you don't eat when you should, you run out of gas. So we have to be mindful of our body budgets. With secret keeping, it's the same thing. If your mind is always thinking about your secrets and how you don't tell somebody about your eating disorder or your overeating or how some form of your trauma got into that mix, you're burning up. You're burning up with feelings that just take it right out of you. And I do think that they take up residence in the body. Yeah. So then in the case of an eating disorder, would that be how the eating disorder behaviors or or any way that the eating disorder comes out would be the communication of what the body is holding on to? It can be. It can be what the body is holding on to. It can also be what the body would like to release, but doesn't know how to. Mm -hmm. What I'd like, almost like what I'd like to be able to tell you, but I can't tell you now. Yeah. So if anybody is reading between the lines, then perhaps there is a lot more information than we think in all of those communications. Yeah. I like to put it to patients. There's a lot of hate and a lot of love in there that you don't know about that is attached to all of these stories. Let's get into those feelings. Yeah. Well, would you say that a lot of this is a process of translating the communications from the behaviors, what's potentially unconscious to something that we're a lot more aware of, doing it deliberately, putting words to it, as opposed to having all of these things just exit our body, communicate for us without us knowing? There's a wonderful clinical case of this. I wish I had written about this, but this is another person's case where he was able to string together clues. Rachel, that this young man's mother had committed suicide. And this is one of the things that had led to his eating problem. And the clinician had then made a very lucky guess. And again, the person hadn't had been in treatment for two years. So this didn't come easily. The clinician made a lucky guess. And what do you think happened? The patient began to sob sob, big alligator tears. So here's where something that had all been in his body, the sadness, the grief, the rage. I mean, and and again, here is, I mean, like this, not the end of the therapy, as you and I know, this is just a new chapter then of the, the 
therapy starting because that clinician had a very made a very lucky guess. He strung parts of the story together like they were little beads on a thread. He came up with a hypothesis. He put it to his patient and bingo, out came this suppressed story, tragic story that the patient felt he had to keep to himself. Well, then, as I, I tell all of my students, that's where therapeutic responsibility begins. That's a whole new chapter of the therapy, because then we've got a patient who's emoting a lot, who's got a lot of different feelings about having to hold that for so many years, feeling that that was too shameful or that he was too responsible, that he in some way had caused this. We are just at the beginning then of a whole other process in getting that person to talk about the meaning of that secret to them. Yeah. So when we say, um, you know, sharing a secret is uh, relieving a load, which it is, it's perhaps not the end of a situation that started in secrets, meaning that's not the treatment in and of itself, period. Yes. It is relieving. It is powerful. It is important and it is significant for the first step and then the next step. That's right. An example of this would be a doctor who I met years ago at a conference. I had been giving a talk on the psychodynamics of addictions and eating disorders. And it was a very basic talk, Rachel, to primary care doctors. And well-meaning doctor came up and said, can I buy you a drink? And I said, sure. He says, I want to talk about my daughter because everything you said in your lecture is wrong. Oh, okay. (laughs) Everything you said is wrong. None of it applies to her. For an hour and a half, I sat there kind of giving a free consultation, which was fine, over a glass of wine. And I was a young clinician at the time. And I just had run out of ideas. So I said, you know, I wish you the best of luck. I hope you and your family, I hope your daughter continues to make good progress with her treatment team, et cetera. And he said, as I got up, oh, there's one more thing, Dr. Zerby, one more thing. Our daughter is adopted. Now, her brothers and sister know it. They're our biological children. But her mother and I have decided never to tell her. Now, you don't think that has anything to do with her eating disorder, do you? Oh. (laughs) This is a dramatic example, Rachel, of where your question just took me. Again, I was getting ready to get on a train and go back to where (laughs) I, I work. But I said, I think that's very important for you to take up with your family therapist, and with your individual therapist, but it's the beginning. I knew it was going to be the beginning of a long conversation, and I suspected something about it. You know, the attachment researcher, John Bowlby, had a paper that I've always loved, and I always teach to my students, called On Feeling What You're Not Supposed to Feel and Knowing What You're Not Supposed to Know. And so we all feel lots of things we're not supposed to feel. You know, we get angry at somebody. We're not supposed to feel that. Or we know things. Think These are not big ticket items, but we know those things. And when we can speak to them, 
when we can allow ourselves to know what we know. And it's no, it's not so much an unthought known, but we know these things. And so I would bet you, I would bet you a couple of great lunches at the best restaurants in New York. And don't take me up on this bet because I would win. I bet you this girl knew on some level she was adopted. I bet you she did, but I bet you she couldn't let herself know that. So peripherally knew it, even unconsciously knew it, if that's a thing. Unconsciously know it, or what we call now, which I think is a better way of thinking about the unconscious, because it's something that's really unconscious. The new neurobiology says we can't get there because it's really unconscious. We think of this conscious unconscious continuum. Mm-hmm. Is it dissociated off? Is it buried under something? But again, to your point, it's the beginning of the conversation when that comes out. She knows something that maybe she doesn't know that's holding her back. So even a general conversation of, I know something I shouldn't know, or I feel like there's something that I don't know. And usually people's intuition is is spot on with that. But just having that as a conversation, whether or not that's true, is key here. The conversation is key. But sometimes people who have these buried secrets struggle with the capacity to put it into words. Mm -hmm. And they develop physical aches and pains or actual areas in their body that move around and shift. And so this Mm -hmm. is where, you know, like one day they have a headache. The next day they come in and they have a toothache or their foot hurts. And we would used to think of them as the psychosomatic continuum of eating disorders with soma. But actually something has gone into their body that migrates. So I've developed a little, I mean, it's not, I didn't develop this, but I (laughs) ask questions such as, what's your foot telling me today? If somebody Mm -hmm. has a foot pain, let's go there. Let's take a tour of your body. What might your headache be saying to us? Or take a couple of breaths. And you, you see what you're doing here too, is you're allowing the psychic fantasy formation to also grow. Somebody can then not just speak to their concrete historical reality, but whatever comes to their mind about why that might be aching that particular day. Yeah. It also gives the opportunity to continue to have that space, whether it's dissociated or whatever is happening between the actual experience and this is something else in my body that's experiencing. I'm going to speak through my headache. I'm going to speak through my tears. I'm going to speak through my foot. And then I can maintain whatever sort of homeostasis that dissociating provides um, while still gathering the information and, and taking steps toward bridging that gap, if you will. Beautifully said. Yes, quite correct. I mean, this is all, I'm, I'm thinking about we're talking about this from one lens, meaning there are too many secrets in a family. Uh, And I guess what was popping into my mind before is when there's a family and there are no secrets whatsoever, that can't be healthy for the relationship either. And and the, the way that a person would then relate to other people outside the family. Oh my goodness. No, because think of a house without any walls. Yeah, it's a great analogy. If everything is, and boy, don't we see this, where so much is shared, where too much is shared, that the individual has no private space of their own. 
And that's another problem. That's another problem altogether, but it sets the individual up for the same sorts of body reactivities. Yeah. Well, so if we're going to sort of reduce a lot of what we're talking about today, because it's very complex theoretically in terms of something um, a bit more practical, is that our understanding of secrets, whatever side of the coin, whether it's too much, too little, or whatever the severity is on the continuum, secrets are incredibly impactful on relationships. And very often what happens is there, I mean, there's a few things that happen, but one thing is that then it sort of perpetuates the cycle of keeping secrets and it is translated into some sort of either the body holding it or somatic experiences or or behaviors or eating disorder behaviors. And then part of cracking the code is to translate that communication into words, create a lot more vocabulary for one's experience. And then you can begin that process, you know, even putting words to one's secret and, and all of that. And then the other piece is the, I guess what, what's coming to mind, the way to describe it is almost an internal regulation piece. So mm-hmm. if I don't have anyone to talk to me, to talk about my secrets to, and I, I don't really know how to deal with all this stuff and everything is just being held inside. And, and I guess this is sort of a branch off of the first piece that I had mentioned is that then what do I do with all of my feelings? Yes, it's probably translated into my body, but it also becomes this uh, dysregulated state. So I do whatever it takes to regulate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's making the information conscious, putting words to the experience. And then there's the somatic piece. And then there's also the emotional pieces. What are my emotions in this? Where are they? What are the names? How do I experience them? Um, and putting all of these pieces together is the work in therapy. And again, like not to reduce this too much, but it sounds like this is the different aspects of treatment. It is. You're also talking about what it takes to help someone grow a private mind, a sense of a private self that they have. And a number of patients over the years, I don't want, you know, I don't know why it is, but I don't want to tell you certain things about myself. And the old saw when I was doing my analytic training was to say back to, well, you know, the the analysis or the therapy can only go as far as you're willing to tell me things. I don't say mm-hmm. that Really? (laughs) I do not. No, I do not. I do not say that anymore. I say something like, good for you. That means you have a private self because look, the secrets are going to come out over time. If the person sticks with the, the treatment and we're working together, the story is going to unfold. But what the person is testing here is that they can have a space that you're not going to take over their mind. If there aren't any walls in the house, how do you know that you're living safely? There's no safe space to be your own. You've got to feel very clear about that. A cognitive tool that I will suggest, even in an analysis, is for people to write. Again, keep their diary, keep a journal, make sure nobody else can find it, write it out. You can even destroy the papers. I advised one person, a very prominent person who came to treatment and in my practice and said, you know, I don't want to do that because even my cleaning lady will know all my secrets. I said, listen, you're a prominent person. Get 
a safe deposit box. And every week, and nobody has to know. Your husband doesn't have to know. Nobody has to know about this but you. And that was actually very helpful for her. She had a safe deposit box where she put her journal entries. Wow. I love that idea. No one would think. Nobody had to know. But you see here, it's also the permission giving and the structure building. Because in that is a room. There's a room to say, these are your private thoughts. But there's the exercise in writing that we also know neuroanatomically, we know it neurophysiologically, that there's something that happens when we write things down that's different than the processing that occurs when it's verbal. And I am all, I mean, I'm an analyst, I'm a therapist for a long time now, and I believe in conversation. I'm all for conversation between friends, but there's also this other kind of processing that goes on when we write. Yeah, I love that. I have one last question. I think we've sort of been circling around it, but I I guess I wonder if there's a little bit more to it. Perhaps there isn't. In thinking about the connection between secrets and the development of eating disorder and all the things in between, the familial stuff, the connectedness, the individuality, the developmental. Why would someone develop an eating disorder as opposed to really anything else? Uh, Depression, uh, any other obsession, any other addiction? Like why eating disorder from the secrets? I think for all eating disorders, what is more basic than food? And in the unconscious, in the unconscious mind, food is equated with love. When we look at rituals, like after someone dies, what happens? Food is brought to the bereaved. Mm -hmm. When you go out on a date, what usually happens? You either go to a movie and have popcorn or you go out to dinner. Why? Well, deep down in there, there's somebody feeding us. And so eating disorders to me are about how much didn't happen lovingly around food and body and something got distorted there that can be rearranged. That's why I think it go I think secrets go into issues of eating and addictions. They're also, by the way, expect this. I have come to expect this. If someone tells you their eating disorder is bothering them three days a week, expect that it's bothering them seven. Mm-hmm. That, it's, the, it's not just that they have an eating disorder or an addiction problem. It's how much. It's how much of it. Because that also remains secret. Mm. So maybe people are sharing half-truths because they are then able to hold on to the rest as a secret. Because of that, because they're embarrassed about how much, because they're very protective of us, that secret does have a lot of meaning to them. And they're eating the, the eating problem has become very much a part of them. And it's like anything, it's hard to give up. It has to be mourned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, we've only scratched the surface of this uh, particular conversation as complex as it is. It's so hard to believe that. But for the interest of time, we'll pause this part of the conversation here. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? I have two books. 
about eating disorders, The Body Betrayed, which was my first book. I'm tickled because people still use it in classes. And it was published in 1993. (laughs) And I have another book, Beyond the Body Betrayed. And I have a number of publications that you can get on Google Scholar. I have a number of articles that are out. Sometimes you have to pay for them. But if people want them, all they have to do is zip me an email and I'll send you a, a hard copy. Some I can do the, the new way through email, but most <laughs> of them have to be scanned. Yeah. And they're really, really wonderful pieces. So I encourage anybody who's interested to learn more, definitely to go read more. I've tried to make my work such that people like yourself who are in the profession and clearly highly skilled and know a lot can read it and get something out of it, but that you could also recommend it to your patients and clients, that it would work for them. Yeah, I think that's part of what's so wonderful about it. We get often really wrapped into the clinical jargon of it, which makes sense to maybe some of us, but is completely meaningless to somebody who actually needs the information. (laughs) Yeah, and there's a lot of clinical jargon, Rachel. I got to tell you that even after 40 years, I don't get. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. I had a wonderful time and learned so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.